Thank you, Neville, for the introduction. Most of my life I spent being introduced as Alec Farrell's son. And then my son Johnny started to become a youth worker and speaker. And then I was introduced as Johnny Farrell's dad. And for five minutes in the middle, I was myself. But it's my joy this morning to come to you and to introduce to you this topic on hospitality. We've lived, as Neville says, through very, very difficult times. And it's the one thing that we probably find ourselves missing more than anything else, the ability to come together and to show hospitality. I don't know if you've ever watched a program come down with me. I'm not going to show, ask for a show of hands. But it's one of those programs that happens or occurs or just shortly before the six o'clock news. And if you come in from work or you're waiting for the news to start and you're, you're channel flicking, you'll come across channel four, come down with me. And before you think I love the program, I actually can't stand the program. Because the program is the worst example possible of hospitality. Probably, if you were to bring all the components of the negative image of hospitality together, they're in that program. Why? Four strangers are brought together, maybe even five. They're brought together and obviously picked at random, but obviously picked so that their personalities won't conflict. They arrive at each person's home. A meal is prepared for them. They go in. They look at the home. They comment on the meal. They criticize the cook. They go up into bedrooms. They look at the furniture. And they come back out. And on the way home in the car, they hold up scorecards out of 10, marking the hospitality they received. Now, I need to be careful. We have friends coming for lunch this afternoon, and I'm doing the cooking, and I don't want them to be marking me out of 10 on the way home. Yes, you heard that right. I'm doing the cooking. That's as big a surprise as anything. But the fact of the matter is that hospitality and that image is all too often reality for us, or certainly our concerns. What are they going to say when they come into the house? Will they like the meal? Will they be marking me? Is the carpet clean? Have we got the furniture ready? Is the garden tidy, etc.? Whereas hospitality in the Bible is something completely different. Hospitality in the Bible, the word hospitality in the Bible actually means showing love to strangers. That's the root of it. To show love to strangers is the meaning of the word hospitality. And if you look at the Bible, you'll see that hospitality and showing love to one another and having meals together runs right from the Bible from the beginning right to the very end. As Tim Keller says, if you took mountains and meals out of the Bible, the Bible would be a very thin book. I know he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but you understand what he's saying. There's repeated, repeated, and repeated the number of times that there's a meal. The first time a meal is probably mentioned in any great detail in the Bible is whenever you look at the Passover. And in the book of Exodus, God tells the people how to prepare the Passover and what to eat as a meal. And the last time in the Bible that a meal is mentioned is in the book of Revelation, when there's a great banquet, when those who have become Christians are received into that great banquet. And the contrast between those two meals is a very interesting study. But that's not the purpose of our coming together this morning. The purpose of our coming together this morning is not to look at this meal in Exodus or the meal in Revelation, but to look at one of the meals that the Lord Jesus Christ participated in while he was here on earth. 
And I want to read it to you, and you'll find it in the book of Matthew, and you'll find it in the book of Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 9. Matthew 9 and verse 9, and it's a very short reading. It's repeated, the same account is repeated in Mark, and it's repeated in Luke. It's in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. But here's what Matthew talks about his own personal calling. Then, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That little story is very, very interesting for a number of reasons. And as we unpack it, we will see one of the motives and one of the reasons why we as Christians should be hospitable. I trust that if you've come here as a result of Community Week over the, the past week, that you've felt welcome, that you've had a cup of coffee either outdoors or in the foyer, that you've been able to enjoy a, a form of hospitality. And normally, in normal environments, we would be a welcoming church that not only brings you into the service, but round the back, we can take you round the back and we can have a cup of coffee and there's a cafe there. We can sit down and we have conversations one with the other. Unfortunately, the present climate does not allow that. And we each feel it. We really feel it. Just to be able to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with other people. So let's go back to the story. Matthew, if you were to select out of the 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus, and if you were to consider them, who would you pick as being the most unlikely candidate? Some of them are well known. The names immediately come to mind. Some of the names of the 12 disciples are more obscure. But one that is well known is Matthew. And Matthew was the most unlikely candidate of them all to become a disciple. You say, why? What about Judas Iscariot and people like that? Well, let me explain to you for another number of reasons. First of all, Matthew was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors aren't the most popular people in any society. We're reluctant to pay our tax. But in the society to which we are referring, Matthew would have been loathed. Matthew would have been hated. Matthew's circle of friends would only have been fellow tax collectors and others who were an outcast of society. Because you see, Matthew was deemed to be supporting the Romans. 
He was a tax collector in Capernaum, and it was right there on the border of two jurisdictions, and he would have controlled the movement of goods through the jurisdictions, and he would have charged tax. Now, some of the taxes in those days were set amounts, 10% or 1%. Even, as a matter of fact, the fishermen who fished probably had to pay Matthew taxes. Makes an interesting conversation, doesn't it, when he becomes a disciple and meets those who were fishermen and disciples. But Matthew didn't just sit in a rickety wee shed at the side of the road and just wait for people to knock on the door and to come and pay tax. He did sit in a booth, Luke tells us that. But the archaeology has shown that this booth would have been a stone building which would have been elevated above the rest of the village or the town. He would have been able to sit up there and he would have been able to watch what was going on around about. And don't get the impression that Matthew would have been sitting there just constantly writing in scrolls and all the rest. Yes, that was probably a part of it, record keeping. But Matthew's job was to watch out and to look out and see what movement was taking place in the town. And it was because of the fact that he was engaging with the Romans, that he was charging people taxes, and probably, if he was characteristic of other tax collectors, overcharging and becoming very wealthy, he was ostracized, he was out of the synagogue, he wasn't allowed to meet with people, he wasn't allowed to worship with people, he wasn't allowed to have a meal with people. He had only a select group of friends. And each and every one of them, the Pharisees call sinners. Isn't it interesting? Pharisees, those who would be separate in hospitality, welcome the stranger. So you have this tension. And the Pharisees come and they say, but they're, they're, they're sinners. That's who they describe them as. Matthew is there in his booth, and Luke tells us quite clearly he's in his booth. And if Matthew was any good as a tax collector, he knew exactly what was going on around about him. He wouldn't have been in that post if he didn't. And he would have known what had happened within a matter of days prior to Matthew meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in that town, a man who was lamed was lowered down through the roof. And when he was lowered down through the roof, you possibly know the story, the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, your sins have been cleaned, cleansed, removed. And they said, but how can you remove sins? Only God can remove sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, which is easier to say to this man to get up and walk or to remove sins? And he said to the man, get up and walk. And the man was completely healed and walked. It was Matthew heard of that story. The town would have heard that story. They'd have heard of the miracles of Jesus Christ, which preceded it. They would have known everything that was going on. And there he is up in his booth. And he sees the crowd. And, and the term for the crowd is an increasing crowd. It was gathering and gathering. And he could see the crowd coming along towards the booth. And as he looked out, the Lord Jesus Christ stopped there and he said to him, follow me. Follow me. And Matthew, knowing what he had heard, realizing that he was an outcast, realizing who he was, made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. 
Now, Matthew following Jesus Christ was a significant step for him. The other disciples were able to return to their original job. The other disciples were able to go back to fishing or whatever else they were doing. Matthew, once he left that job as a tax collector, the door closed, and that was it. He walked away from it. But here is one who was a sinner, one who was ostracized, one who was distant, one who probably desired to know more and wanted to know more about this Lord Jesus Christ, who was confronted by Jesus Christ, and he followed him. Maybe you've come in from Community Week this week, and maybe you are interested in hearing more about this person, Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to know who he is. Maybe you've come in here with this burden of sin. We don't like to use that word, but the Bible uses it. And that sin which has separated you not only from others, even your family, possibly even the community, possibly even from friends and relatives, but as more importantly, separated you from God. You're aware of it. You just want it dealt with. How can I get rid of this sin? You can do what Matthew did and follow him. If you obey the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him, accept him as your Lord and Savior. He deals with the problem of your sin. But let's move back to our account. Matthew called a dinner. It's a big dinner, a large dinner. And who was there? Well, who do you expect? His friends, those who were tax collectors, those, if you like, who were the mafia of the time, those who were the outcasts, those who were perceived by the Pharisees who perceived themselves as being religious and good people, could stand on the outside of that room and say, they're sinners. They're wrong. But as they point to them, they forget they're pointing back at themselves. And Matthew gathered these people together. And why did he gather them together? He gathered them together because in the midst of that gathering was Jesus Christ. He brought them together to show them and introduce them to Christ. And he also was making a statement. He was saying to them, I'm closing the door on the life that I've lived. I have decided to follow him. I'm not coming back to this way of life. That's me done with it. I'm now following him. And it was in that environment that they were reclining and sitting and eating. And in that environment where they were reclining, eating and sitting, the Pharisees pointed and say, sinners. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes a remarkable statement. Linking back to possibly some of the miracles that went before, but more importantly to the very incident, he says, does a doctor deal with the healthy or does he deal with the ill? Now, we don't need to explain that. It's quite obvious. Does a doctor deal with the healthy? Or deal with the ill? They didn't answer because it's quite obvious. The Lord Jesus Christ came 
to deal with those and with you and with me. And each and every person, because the Bible says all have sinned. None of us are excluded from this. None of us are pharisaical and standing on the outside and saying, you're a sinner. We're not there. We've all been inside. We've all been sinners. We all are sinners. And the only difference is that we've met Jesus Christ. But Matthew says, I want you to meet Jesus. And so this is the first of three talks on hospitality. And this talk is focusing on introducing people to Christ. Using hospitality as a means of reaching out. Now, we don't just do hospitality with a single item agenda that I'm going to preach to you. That would be completely wrong to think of it as that way. But it is a tool that we as Christians are commanded to use. To love the stranger. To love your neighbor. Can I ask you a question? A basic question? Does your neighbor know you're a Christian? Do they, are they aware of your faith? It's the only way in which they know you're a Christian because they see you getting into a car on Sunday morning carrying a Bible and coming back to, from church at a certain time dressed in a certain way? Or have you spoken to them? I can remember a colleague of mine coming home from work one day. We had to return back to the school later that evening and she lived a distance away. And so she said, um, I said, come down to our house for tea. You haven't got time to go back. So we came back for tea and my wife and I made us tea. We had our tea together. And as she was getting out of the car when she came back, she says, you know, David, she said, I left school as a complete and total atheist. She says, I'm going back in now as an agnostic. What does she mean? I denied God. Now I don't know if God exists. And I said to her, well, you better come back again because you might be converted the next time. Because that's what it's about. This is a wonderful message that we have. We will go and we'll talk to our neighbors about Arsenal getting defeated on, on Friday. Well, sorry, I shouldn't mention that. Or United meet running on Saturday. We'll talk about all of the things. We'll talk about the weather. We'll talk about politics. We'll talk about everything. But have you spoken to your neighbor about Christ? Do they know you're a Christian? It doesn't have to be overtly preaching from the top of your chimney pot. But it's quietly working, talking, and reaching out to them. It's the elderly woman whose daughter is seriously ill and texts you and says, would you pray for her? It's the elderly lady who has lived across the road from you for generations. And she's in home, in a residential home. And you go down to the bed and you kneel beside her and you take her hand and you pray with her. It's the people who live nearby who have come into your community from abroad. They're foreigners. They may even be asylum seekers and refugees. It's the person who's widowed and lonely and just longs for that cup of coffee when you bring them up to your garden, you sit, you chat with them, and you just quietly talk about who you are. I could go on. Each and every one of those could have those experiences. But it's our responsibility 
because we have this fantastic news, good news. Not looking on the outside saying, you're a sinner, but saying, we were sinners. And we have been brought into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a meaningful life. Our life has been changed. I've turned my back on everything that went before, and I'm moving forward to follow him. That's the message. To place him and trust him as your personal Savior. Let me, in closing, read to you an account. I'm going to read it because it's fair to give a correct justice. It's an account by a Christian woman known as Rosario Butterfield. And when she was interviewed in Christianity Today about her story, about her coming to faith, here's what she said. She recounts what she wrote in a book. And the title of the book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a house key. She was a university professor. She was an activist, a feminist. She hated Christians. She loathed them, as in her own words. And she moved from that point to becoming a Christian. Listen to her words. When I lived as an activist, I very much thought, this is who I am, and this is how I want to live. When I started writing my post-tenure book at the university, it was on the religious right and the people they supposedly hated, people like me. The Bible, I never read it. I was more happy to criticize them in a book that I had never read. Traditionally, Christians have been taught to share the gospel by starting with the good news that Jesus saves us from our sins. But in the reality, we live in a world that doesn't believe we need saved from our sins. In reality, it believes we need saved from our Christian neighbors. Interesting me line. While writing the book, this book, her post-tenure book, I got to know a neighbor, Ken Smith. He was a conservative Presbyterian pastor. What was striking was that when his home, that his home looked like my home. I learned this because he invited me in. For two years, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I had initially mocked, despised, and rejected. I initially accepted them when it worked for me, rejected them when it didn't. But I stress there is simply no way I would have walked into a church if I hadn't had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. For two years, Ken and his wife, Zoe, met with me. At their home, the door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house. People could speak honestly and tears would flow. But it was different, very different. Because Ken would eventually open the Bible and then he would pray. It was so disarming, I couldn't help but go back. It was in this context of hospitality that Ken brought the church to me. Because it was impossible for me to get to the church without the bridge of somebody's home. I stress what you can't do. 
as a Christian is make sneaky little raids into people's lives and then expect them to thank you for that. If you want to have strong conversations, you have to build relationships. Realizing your neighbors are struggling with things, nobody is doing great. I'm not doing great. You're not doing great. We're all tired, especially in this crisis. We need help. If you believe we live in a post-Christian world and you believe that we're in a crisis, then let's act like it. The way we deal with this crisis is to understand that hospitality is a necessary form of spiritual warfare. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a cup of coffee, and a box of Kleenex because tears will spill. That's a powerful account. And it summarizes in so many ways what Matthew did. Come, have dinner, and meet Jesus. And Neville mentioned that we have no service this week, or for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the question of hospitality. And the reason is, one, to give the fellas and the technical teams a bit of a break. They've been very, very busy for 18 months. But more importantly, to give you an opportunity on a Sunday evening, afternoon, whatever, to show hospitality to one another, which we'll hear more about in the incoming weeks. But more importantly, to those who don't know Christ, because it is a bridge between them and the church. It's a bridge between them and Christ. It's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for you. It's a challenge for each and every one of us not to be come down with me, but to show love to the stranger, the stranger who doesn't know the love of God. Let's close in prayer together. Father, we come into your presence and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, for his death for us upon the cross. We thank you that he dealt with the problem of our sin and that we have been restored into a relationship with him and with you. Father, we've been challenged to reach out, challenged to reach out to those around about us. Help us, our Father, to fulfill this challenge, to behave in a way which is appropriate, to act in a way which is satisfying, and to speak in a way which is challenging, but kind. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We pray for those who are struggling. Help us, our Father, to cross the bridges and to meet them. And ask for your blessing now upon each and every one of us gathered. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.